All right, please stand up with me and we'll begin with a prayer together. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee, without the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father and thine all-holy, good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. I'm going to shut the door really quick. All right, Christ is in our midst. He is there. Thank you. It's been a while since uh, we've been together, aside from last week. Um, has anyone been reading anything in, that's been particularly helpful in recent days? I've been reading the Bible. The Bible. You know what? When, when people show up here to explore orthodoxy, the first thing that I want to get in their hands is the Orthodox Study Bible. That's what I have. Yeah, because... If, if you approach the Bible alone, the, the Bible, where did it come from? You know, there, there's so many questions about it. Where did it come from? Why is it important? And then how do I even read and interpret it? And the Orthodox Study Bible is full of lots of helpful little articles. The footnotes are accessible. That make, you know, it, make it, it makes it realistic to begin to read it. So, um, I just read a teeny bit. Yeah. Course, it's Genesis, which is like... So I would start. I would tell you to start with the the New Testament, the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew. Well, I have read those. You have. Mary, I mean Barbara gave me the study Bible. Yes. That lesson plan that's you read. Oh, so you're reading like over the course of a year. Yes. Okay, so it's split up into different sections. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it is difficult. Be patient with yourself, and uh, take your time. Yeah. So, but that is. I keep a I keep a case of Orthodox study Bibles in my office, just in case anyone needs one. Yeah, you need one. I'll get one for you. Um, just you know, I don't I don't want someone who shows up here to have to you know go buy a thirty dollar or whatever it is. Probably more now. Everything's expensive now. So so I try to you know. I try to make it as, as easy as possible, as long as they're going to take it, treat it with with respect, you know. Um, I'm already wearing that. But the reason he gave me mine was because yeah. I've already been through. This is my third copy. I've been yeah. through about for just reading the Bible every day for the last two yeah. years, and I just stopped torn the thing up. So this this has lasted a little longer, but um, my study habits have changed. If you talk about you know, I'm not following the guideline exactly. What I'm doing is I pray a few times a day, and after three times I pray, I read a couple of chapters out of the Bible, mm-hmm. starting with the New Testament. But what I'm doing is also I'm going down and reading the, the notes, and then yeah. getting back up and reading the line that pertains to it. And I've, this, look, I went to Catholic school for 12 years. I've learned more in the last two months than I learned in 12 years of Catholic school. Yeah. Uh, and understanding the Bible, I mean, one of the things I, I 
even though I said I've talked to Father Jeremiah about this, there's a lot of people who look at the book of Revelations and they think that that's the end of the world. Three quarters of the book of Revelations is just discussing from Genesis up to Christ. The big lion that's coming out of the, that's Babylon, five different countries. That's Babylon taking over um, the Jewish community. A lot of people don't realize that Revelation is only the last couple chapters are actually about so, the end of the time. So you've been reading, well, you know, and, and it's not, so the book of Revelation is not, specifically not prescribed to be read in the services of the church throughout the year. Because, because it is a, it's a difficult book and it requires sensitivity and interpretation. And there's a lot of room for confusion. But because, and the church actually, the Orthodox Church struggled with the question of whether or not to include it in the, the New Testament. Because of the difficulty of interpreting not because it wasn't inspired. I mean, the authority of, I mean, the, uh, the what do I want to say? The um, validity of it. I can't think of the right word. Um, no, no, I mean, no. So all I want to say is that there, it was, it's specifically not read in the liturgical cycle of the church year, even though it was included in the New Testament. And it's, it's considered to be beneficial for a private study and edification. And there, there aren't a lot of commentaries on it. There's one by St. Andrew. Is it, I don't know if he's saint. Might just be an early, like an early church father. But by Andrew of Caesarea, who wrote a commentary on the apocalypse or revelation. And then we have a five-volume set downstairs, actually, that was written by a contemporary Orthodox priest and elder we can you know we consider him an elder because he was a, a wise teacher um, and he realized that there was a need for that so he gave he basically gave sermons like after services and things and, and teachings on the book of revelation and it ended up being published as five volumes of commentary on revelation so if you are interested in, in that, that's probably where I would lead you to start, you know, slowly reading through one volume at a time. And it would be interesting to do our own study group at some point on that. Yeah. We're doing the, the Divine Liturgy right now. There's so much that I've thought about doing, you know, there's just, there's so many options. So, well, good, we have a lifetime. He's been here for 20 years, and I guarantee he hasn't gotten that far yet. <laughs> yeah. So anyone else reading anything that's been helpful or inspiring? Yeah? Father Joseph from uh, Thomas. I think his name's Father, Father David. David. Mm -hmm. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, he gave me this book about martyrs, about different saints. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been really, uh, you know, spiritually beneficial. Good. Reading it throughout the week. Yeah. Since I went there last Sunday, it goes like every day of the year. Mm -hmm. It's a different saint. Yeah. And I think it's interesting you brought up Revelation because I think reading Revelation prepares us for martyrdom. Yeah. Right. I think that's yeah. Yeah. one of the main subjects. You're right. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. I wrote a paper on the book of Revelation for um, my my Orthodox studies, and that was one of them. The main point that, that, was, that I made in my paper was that it wasn't about anticipating what is to come, but enduring what is pre present, you know? And we should all be ready for martyrdom. I mean, honestly, I'm when it comes out. I'm curious about, like, 
So I was a product student for like four years almost, and uh, mm-hmm. we go over the Revelations a lot. That's one of the main books that brought me to Orthodoxy. Uh-huh. Right? Like I think Revelations 11 yeah. talks about Mary. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of Protestants don't see that. Yeah. And well, and also you see images of heavenly worship. With the, the the elders with their white robes and the bowls of incense, and there's when you step into the Orthodox Church, if you've studied the Book of Revelation at all, you'll see, whoa, there's a lot of similarity there, you know, and the the worship of the church is modeled after the worship in um, as revealed in Scripture. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. I've been reading Saint Porphyrios. Saint Porphyrios. I, keep, I, I know we have some that, tricky names. That gentleman, he had one year of schooling as a kid, and he taught himself how to play the piano. He actually sat in on medical classes, and he could do medical procedures if he had to. This, yeah, he was that type of person. He put he, he put his mind to something, he could accomplish it. And, his, uh, and, and to be honest with you, he's probably, the stories I've read, he's probably one of the most humble human beings in the world. He would, he never walked around and I know how to do that. I know how to do that. No, he just, he always, just went and did stuff and people would just go. He always acted surprised. He always acted kind of like surprised in a way, either surprised by what God was doing or... Um, or he approached it. Like he, or he kind of minimized, like it just, oh, is, that's just what God, that's what's normal. Well, yeah, that's, that's what God like you said, oh, that's what God wants me to do. Like he would, he was very insightful. Like he, he could talk to you if you were feeling sick and he could say, oh, it's your, no, it's, you know, it's your liver, not your stomach. It's your, you know, he could, yeah, he could diagnose. It was very interesting. He had a unique ability to see into people, but he would even say, like, oh, yeah, sometimes God lets me see and sometimes he doesn't. Because yeah. people would go to him like a like a vending machine almost sometimes, you know, like to, to get a miracle. Well, and he'd say, I can't. I can't today for some yeah. God doesn't, you know. That, that guy that worked there. It's like, yeah. The first time he noticed it, I guess, was he was at a monastery and he saw his elders were nowhere where he could see them. But he told them exactly what they were doing. That's right. And where they were at. They were like, oh, yeah. Okay, how did you do yeah, that? Yeah, I saw you coming through the hill, he said. Yeah. And they realized at that time that he had, he had insight. Yeah, he was, he's, I'm almost done with the book, but he's, that was amazing. Man. Yeah, that book, Wounded by Love, is a very yeah. good book. He, mm-hmm. And his whole thing is, especially the last two books that I've read, both the, the elders, their wish was to be off by themselves at the monastery. Like Father um, Porphyrios. Porphyrios. He got into the Orthodox religion. One of the first, first books he ever read was about a monk who lived off by himself. St. John the Hut Dweller. Yeah, the Hut yeah. Dweller. And that's who, was, who he wanted to emulate his whole yeah. life. But well, unlike before, my other book before was... He, he always wanted to be off on his own, but kept getting pushed into doing. Whereas Father Porfirios, Porfirios knew he wanted to be off by himself, but he knew that wasn't his call. Yeah. He, where the other. So he ended up in the middle of Athens, serving 
in the like you know in the middle of the city. He was, like you said, an uneducated person who basically grew up like a like a bumpkin, yeah. you know, in an uneducated family, kind of salt of the earth. Went to Mount Athos as an adolescent. Yeah, fourteen years old. He was, I mean, he might have even been 12. Oh, yeah, well, but he was, yeah, 12, he was 12 when he took off, 14 when he finally... That's right, when he finally that's right. Him, yeah. He could, at 14. But, uh, but anyway, then he ended up as, as a, a priest in one of the busiest areas in this metropolitan area. At the hospital, too. Yeah, was, at the hospital. The church that was at the hospital. He actually, he was hand-picked. And he actually beat out a guy who was a... Had a PhD. Who, had, who was a theologian, was you know? A yeah. Theologian, and the, the doctors picked him over the other guy because yeah. he, you could feel his, you could feel the presence of him. They made an exception for him because he didn't have the qualifications required for that job. No. But yeah. Well, that's well, when he took up medicine. That's where he learned his medicine. Well, remember, a little boy came with a with a like a biology textbook into the church, and he. He looked at the book and he said, I think he said, can I borrow that? And he looked at it and he saw the human physiology. And he's like, I've seen that before. When I see people and I see what's wrong with them. Oh, that's lung. Those are lungs. Those are called lungs. That's a liver. That's a spleen. That's, those are intestines. Like he, he see, saw things, but he didn't know what to call them. And so he fell in love with the complexity of God's creation through his ability to see God's creation as it is. Sort of sitting in medical classes. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. What, what when century he had was this? Huh? What century was? Uh, this last, the last 20th century. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until, the Into the 90s, yeah. St. Porphyrios here. I'll write his name down. Yes. I was going to say, give yourself five years to get the names right, and then you'll still mispronounce them. Yes. I actually happen to have, I have, a little, I have a little book of his sayings with me today. That's called Wounded by Love. It starts out it's in the in, library, or you can buy it. It's, it's, it's starts out with him telling his life story, and then he goes into stories of people telling stories about him. Then he makes some movies about these guys. Uh, Father Germani, is he the um, Was he the one that went um, in the boat with Father uh, Pante Limon and his brother to the monastery to, to help him? As a child? Yeah, that he told yeah. yeah. And he, he said, this is my nephew. Yeah, this is my nephew. Yeah. That's how he got under the Holy Mountain as a young, as, because he was too young. And then that one brother will come and tell him, you know, build this rock, mm -hmm. and then the other brother will come and What are you doing? Move it, Move it over there. Yeah, exactly. And then the other one will come and, and. Well, they were doing it on purpose. Yeah, exactly. They were wearing him, they were humbling him, you know. Yeah. And when he was able to see them coming, um, you know, from the, across the mountain before they can come, he got the clairvoyance as a giant. That's right. That's what Mark was talking about. To be able to, to see that they were coming. And that's right. He, he was clairvoyant. So when he said, I saw you coming through the hill, they, they were like, oh. And they understood, you know, they understood that. Yeah. That's right. Isn't he the one also that, that feel, that can feel the water on their, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's how he, that's how they built the monastery. They wouldn't yes. be able to build it without him finding the water. There are things that are unbelievable. There are three there are three volumes 
There's a three, currently three volumes of accounts from witnesses who spent time with him, who experienced many miracles. One, I'll tell you one about the water. There was a, there was a guy who was uh, an Orthodox Christian investor, and he was looking at building like a, a hotel or something on a piece of property. And he asked St. Porphyrios to come. Because St. Porphyrios, he wasn't out in the middle of nowhere. He was, for a lot of his life, he was in the thick of it around people. And so he made friends and they would say, can you come with me? We need to figure out if this is a good site. And I need to know if, if there's water. And so he said, okay, I'll come with you. And they went to this nice flat piece of land. And St. Porphyrios went off by himself and the man kind of he he knew that he didn't he would like his privacy but he kind of followed him to observe what he was doing and he said he says saint porphyrios got down toward the ground and it was he went like this like he was scooping water there was nothing in his hands but he's scooping water and he was like t- tasting it and he got up and he went, the man scurried off and he came back and he said, you're right. There is a lot of water here, but it's no good. It's saline. It's full of salt. You can't, you could not use it. And so there were many times throughout his life, he had this unique ability to go and he could take, oh, I tasted the water there. It's very sweet. Like you know, the monastery he built before he, right before he passed. Mm-hmm. It took, that, one of the reasons it took so long to build the monastery is they couldn't find water. Mm-hmm. He finally found water, and it was the sweetest water he said he ever <laughs> We experience things like this all the time. It's kind of funny. The, the monastery called St. Anthony's down in Arizona, um, Florence, was founded by a monk from Mount Athos who founded 19 monasteries in his lifetime. He came, he was a little Greek Orthodox monk who came over to the United States, barely spoke English, and over the course of his life, founded 19 beautiful monasteries in the United States. St. John Monastery in Goldendale, Washington is one of them. And you've stopped off there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. But, but at St. Anthony's Monastery, so the first place he went, he wanted to go out and, and have a, a place in a, like a remote kind of desolate area, you know, because it's conducive to simplicity and prayer. And he was looking at a piece of land and it was expansive and it was cheap. And he said, this is it. And the, the realtor said, no, this isn't. There's no water here. And he said, yes, there is. And you're going to drill right here. And they thought he was insane. Why would we do that? There's, there's no water, but it's your money. And they did. And they found a huge like aquifer. And now, out in the middle of nowhere in the desert in Arizona, they have orchards, you know, olives. I think they have olives, lemons, um, citrus. I mean, it's like an oasis out in the middle of nowhere. So these, these kinds of things are not uncommon in our tradition. In fact, they're just normal, you know. This from the book, all the books you've given me is yeah. every one of the stories, this so what so what we what we refer to and you'll hear me say this more than once what we refer to as miracles on earth 
there really aren't miracles. It's just things that we were blind to before in our blindness to the presence of God on earth. You know, we forget that the earth is God's and he can do with it as he wants. It's malleable, it's pliable. God, God can, can add or take away. You know, God can grant someone the ability to see something that others cannot. So when someone is in tune with God, they're not bound by the limitations of creation itself. You know, they become unbounded. And that's what you experience with those who, are, who really live charismatic lives. You know, it's interesting that there are people who have gone through the charismatic movement and they, they think it's about expressing themselves in prayer and freedom. And you've been there, Roberto. You know, um, I, I've passed through that in my experience too. But in the Orthodox tradition, you find people who are truly charismatic, really, in this, the lives of the saints and elders. So There's an idea I heard as well that miracles don't break reality. They show reality as it is. That's 100%. Correct. They show reality as it is. Yeah. It's not, an, it's not an exception or an aberration or something like that to reality. It's a revelation of it. Yeah. Yep, I agree with you. So let's talk a little bit about icons. We talked about the incarnation. Talked about Christ as fully God and fully man. Remember, I just wiped it off of the board. I should have kept it there for you. But there are two essential things that we talk about when we're talking about the about Christology, meaning who we believe Christ to be. That he is fully God and fully man. And two persons in one nature. So the, the perfect union of the, the human and the divine without being separate persons. What, what happened at the fall of mankind was our willful separation from the love of God. You know, the, the separation of the creation, of falling into delusion, like I said today earlier, uh, the falling into the delusion that we could live as if God did not exist somehow, or as if we could be independent of God. It's a delusion, it's not real. And, and so... Christ, when he united divinity and humanity in himself, he healed that division, that delusion that we had fallen into, that illness. And we talk about the, um, the human condition more often as an illness rather than a, a status, especially not a legal status before God. Um, so, and we'll get into the, the, the more, more details about that later. But... After talking about the fact that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he was visible to people, that he was encountered, that he was touched, that they came into contact with him, it's appropriate for us to talk about the significance of iconography. So let's talk about it. This little session that we'll do um, is called Icon of the Invisible God. And if if we have time, then we'll go into talking about... uh, the place of Mary. Oh, yeah. Do you guys want to grab and share? Sorry, I forget about that sometimes. If you want to pass them around. And maybe you, someone can find what page it is in the book. Special study. 
It's, it's on 113 MI, which means it's at 112 Really, is it one page off? Yeah. It's at the end of chapter 6. Okay. What page is it? 111. 111. Okay. So let's let's jump in. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, He specifically outlawed the making of idols. Idols. I'm thinking about whether or not I want to go on a tangent. No. I'll keep, I'll stay focused. He did so to prevent the people of Israel from creating an image of God from their imaginations. As the Apostle Paul said, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold, silver, or stone, graven by art and man's device. So, um, another translation says, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. God is pure spirit. He has no material form. So when the writers of the scripture speak of the hand of God or state that God sees or hears, you hear that throughout the scriptures, they're using metaphorical language. While God allowed this kind of language about him to be used, um, how else could we speak about God? He drew the line at material representations. And this is still talking about the Old Testament before the incarnation. God understood that man had, man had the tendency to formulate gods in his own fallen image. The prohibition against idols was a safeguard against thinking that man could somehow capture the infinite God by using created forms. The classic putting God in a box. Oh, there he is. You know. Don't we have a, like, a Holy Trinity icon that depicts God? It, rep- it depicts the angels who visited Abraham who are seen as an image or a, 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 an appearance, a foreshadowing of our understanding of who God is. But God, God in his fullness cannot be depicted completely. But we'll get into some of the nuance about it. Um, so, but it was a protection against this idea that somehow in our mind and even in pictorial form or physical form, we could capture the infinite God. The law of Moses, however, was a custodian or schoolmaster, according to St. Paul. Its purpose was to prepare the words, the world excuse me, for the coming of Christ. And with the advent of the Son of God in the flesh, man's relationship with God changed radically. John 1.18 says, I'm going to read a different translation than you guys have. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared Him. So Jesus Christ, the icon of the invisible God, from Colossians 1.15, He's called the icon of the invisible God, came to reveal God to man and renew in man the image of God, which had been distorted by sin. 
Remember that quote that we ended with by St. Athanasius about the restoration of the painting. At the incarnation, the bodiless God took on a body. The invisible one became visible to human eyes. Iconography is the one, uh, excuse me, is one of the ways the church expresses her faith in the incarnation. Icons are not merely helpful illustrations. They witness to the fact that the invisible God had become man. St. John of Damascus wrote this. His On the Divine Images is, is very helpful. He says, I do not adore the creation rather than the creator. And that's the, that's the fault, the problem with idolatry. To confuse creator and creation. To conflate the two. So he says, I do not adore creation rather than the creator, but I adore the one who became a creature, who was formed as I was, who clothed himself in creation without weakening or departing from his divinity, that he might raise our nature in glory and make us partakers of his divine nature. Therefore, I boldly draw an image of the invisible God, not as invisible, but having become visible for our sakes, by partaking of flesh and blood. I do not draw an image of the immortal Godhead, but I paint the image of God who became visible in the flesh. Meaning, we Christ can be depicted. Christ can. Now, I'm trying to remember if, no. One of the best defenses for iconography, I think, is... In the Bible. We like the Bible in the Orthodox Church, by the way. You know, uh, we gave the world the Bible, or the church did. I wasn't there at that time, but, you know, it really is the book of the church. But uh, what do I want to see? This is it. So the prologue, it's called, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, provides the best defense for iconography. And then we have many, many books explaining about the significance and meaning of iconography. But listen to this. Bear with me. We've talked about Christ as the the Logos or the Word of God. And so St. John, being more of the, the theological Uh, evangelist, he uses, employs this language in his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to know his own and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of 
blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here it is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so it talks about the word becoming flesh. And then, let's see, is there another passage I want to read to you? Yes, also by St. John in his um, epistle, his letter, 1 John. He says, so he talks about in the prologue to the gospel about the word of God becoming flesh. And then in 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So he's, he uses very, the language of the senses. He uses the, the language of God becoming man and having a direct encounter, hearing, seeing, and touching him. And iconography is a witness to the fact that God really did become man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so from the time that he became man, the church deemed it appropriate to, to begin to, to depict him as such. Depict him and those who were with him as, as a theological statement, but also as, a, as a, a teaching tool, you could say. And so um, icons are, we could say, visual, visual equivalents of the divine scriptures in a way. Just as the Bible is not simply a book, icons are not simply pictures. I like to refer to them as theology in color. They're vehicles of revelation. They're, they're saying something. They're speaking something. They're communicating something to us. Have you ever heard the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words? The same goes for iconography. When I look at the icon of St. Herman of Alaska, I think about the, the real man who lived on earth, who lived on Spruce Island in Alaska, who served children, who tended, who nursed the sick, who started an orphanage, you know, who made cookies for the kids, who, whom, whom they still believe is alive, <laughs> you know, even though he passed to eternity. So, you know, when we look, when we look at the icons of all of the saints, we look at the, we, it's a revelation of the reality of their existence. Um, not just an idea or some nice form of religious art. One of my favorite little moments was in an interview by a, 
a man I know named Father Maximus Constance. He was a, um, a monk on Mount Athos. And 60 minutes was granted permission to go on to Mount Athos and do a little episode on, uh, on Mount Athos, you know, the monastic republic of Mount Athos. And up to that point, there had only, I think, been one time really when uh, like journalists were allowed to come onto Mount Athos. And they were talking to Father Maximus, who's actually now over in Boston teaching at the seminary. Uh, they were talking to him about the icons that they had there at the monastery. And one of them said, do, 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 you know, religious art. And he went, not art. And I thought it was, it was incredible because he's this very articulate, gentle, self-controlled person. And so he says what he means. And so when they, when they erred by referring to iconography as art, he had to correct them. Because art is something that is mostly there for human enjoyment or human expression. And iconography is something divine and theological. Yeah, you know that. So it's that's a little debatable. <laughs> uh, I our iconographer who does our our um, hand painted iconography that's on the walls and up front. She said people get really worked up about this whole thing about writing icons. Well, we don't paint icons; we write icons. He said in Russian, it's the same word, write or paint. So she was like, I think maybe some converts kind of got excited about the idea. Oh, because painting makes it sound too banal or something like that. And so you could say, oh, we write icons to express that there's a deeper intention behind it. But she's like, but I, people in the iconography community don't really think about it too much. You just, you produce icons there. You could say, you know, you write it. Yes, you paint it. True. But you create an icon. So I asked, did icons mm -hmm. come before People started writing down the words in the Bible? Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly right. So um, St. Saint, Saint Luke, who wrote one of the Gospels, was, was also the first iconographer. Well, I would like to say, I'd like to say God is the first iconographer because, you know, and he, but because he, he allowed, he became flesh. Um, but um, but he, he's known as being the first one to depict um Mary holding Christ as a child. And that's the prototype. That's the first version of this icon that is in every church to the left of the beautiful gates. Where's With, the original? Where is the original? Yeah, I don't know. And that's, that's a great question. I in the 60 minutes when the 60 minute guy thought that he had seen beautiful churches, I mean, you know, monasteries, mm -hmm. the, the different places that he went when he was in the mountain. But when they took him and, you know, they unlocked, usually two monks have the key when uh -huh. they have like that. That's right. I, I mean, I was like, wow. Yeah, where are they it, yeah they had an archive they where they archive. where they're preserving ancient says, icons. He says, I couldn't believe it. You know, it's like one of those, that, like they have they have an atomic bomb over there or something because, you know, how they have the old... No, yeah, no one person has access, person to, that has to that vault. Yeah. this is a sticker. He couldn't believe how yeah. thick that vault 
things from that video, everybody's watching. It's yep. the end when he took up to the, see the relics? Mm -hmm. the pile of, like after a monk dies, they bury him in the, in the cemetery. Uh -huh. That's right. And then they, after, I don't know how much. Usually it's a few years. Then mm -hmm. they take their bones out. Yeah. And their relics out. And then they put them all together. Mm -hmm. And then he says, well, and like he asked them, when you see, the systematic guy asked them, when you see this, I mean, what do you think? And he There's says, a room full yeah. of like skulls and yeah. bones and things. Yeah. And he says, that's, I think of them as my as my future like neighbors my future roommates <laughs> my, roommates, my future roommates because i'll be there one day yeah you know, like wow yeah so can you find a picture of the original icon that saint luke drew can you, can you google that what does it look like just curious well it looks like that i mean we have an icon of saint luke painting the icon but uh all but all of the icons are built on that representation didn't the Templars find it? I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know. We can do a little research about that. Museum in France. Yeah. Because I know they they took a bunch of icons and stuff like that. Yeah, but they're also there. There's when it comes to really really old things like icons and relics, um, it it takes a lot to verify the uh, the authentic to authenticate them too. Like if someone one of my friends was telling me, like for example, we have the head of St. John the Baptist that has been preserved. Um, and, uh, but, but then he said, you know, like at the Vatican, the Roman Catholics have like, uh, like several heads of St. John the Baptist, meaning they're not all the head of St. John the Baptist. So, you know, it's hard. Sometimes it is hard to authenticate some of the things, but, uh, but we, but we do know that he was the first to, create an icon of Christ, the prototypical icon of Mary and Christ. And so the icons are vehicles of revelation and they're, it's like a sacrament of God's presence in a way. To encounter an icon is to encounter something real, something that, that, that is a physical representation of the reality of God's physical presence. So it's, a, it's, it's to encounter something that's more than just uh, a depiction, and just so you know, the word, the word in Greek that we translate as as icon, um, it also just means image. In Greek, icon and, and Latin imago, so icon image can be in translation. They can be used interchangeably. Saint Theodore the Studite, who also wrote in defense of the holy icons. He wrote, Jesus nowhere told anyone to write down the concise word, yet his image was drawn in writing by the apostles and has been preserved up to the present. Whatever is marked there with paper and ink, the same is marked on the icon with varied pigments or some other material medium. And it is significant to think about it. This is one of those things that helped me turn the corner toward respecting Christian tradition and leading me to orthodoxy is that uh, there is the, there is no uh, book or letter or anything that, that Christ wrote. 
He didn't write anything on paper. He didn't leave us anything other than uh, the living letter that he was, the life that he lived, and the witness of those who directly encountered him, who then wrote about him. So another reason why it's appropriate to depict him iconographically. So anyway, continuing on, just as we encounter Christ in the scriptures, so we also encounter Christ and his saints in the holy icons. The seventh ecumenical council that met in 787 decreed that the church must proclaim her faith in the incarnate Lord in words and in images. In doing so, she safeguards herself from those who would deny that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. On the first Sunday of Great Lent, we call it the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the church commemorates the final restoration of icons after the period of iconoclasm. Now, um, I don't need this Bible anymore. Um, So the word iconoclasm means, uh, literally means icon or image smashing. So the iconoclasts were those who were against the depiction of God, either because they, um, they were under Jewish influence and they, uh, they had a, mis- a, a misapplication of the early commandment given by God, or um, some had fallen under uh, Islamic influence too. And during times of, uh, as, as Islam was becoming more prevalent and influential by force, there was also a lot of fear to, to be in opposition to them. And they were, they are iconoclasts, absolutely. Uh, they don't believe, they believe that Christ is a, is a good man and a prophet, but they don't believe that he is the very God of very God, as we say. And so, therefore, don't accept any depictions of him as such. They believe they are the true fundamentalists. They believe that the only way that God is revealed is through the writings of the scripture in the original language, their, their Koran. Um, and uh, our understanding of even the Bible, as much as we love the scriptures, the holy scriptures themselves, the, scripture, the scriptures bear witness to something greater than themselves. They're not an end in themselves. We love the scripture as a verbal icon, a verbal revelation, a written proclamation of the teaching of God. But our goal is not to encounter the Bible. Just like our goal isn't to encounter wood and pigment, but to encounter the living God who is revealed through the scripture who is revealed through the icons. And that's the true meaning of symbolism. The true meaning of symbolism... I'm getting excited with two two pens here. The true meaning of, of symbol is not one thing representing something else, but actually the bringing together bringing together 
Sorry about my crazy writing. No, your crazy writing is the writing in your little notebook. Oh, yeah, you, my notebooks. About yeah, it's big, it's pretty it's crazy. So, so clear. the bringing together. So when we say, for example, um, if we were to say the bread, the bread and the wine are a symbol of God's presence in a way. We're not saying that they're not, that it isn't the body and blood of Christ. We're saying that actually it is the body and blood of Christ. It's united creation with creator and it's brought together what was once artificially separated. So symbolism through the scriptures and iconography are not just um, you know neat metaphors or something like that, but the literal, the literal, actual and literal bringing together of what was separated artificially through the fall. So, going back, uh, we celebrate the Sunday of Orthodoxy and the final restoration of icons after iconoclasm, which took place in um, 843. On this day, the church reaffirms her commitment to proclaim that the whole, uh, the whole counsel of God and to hold fast to the apostolic tradition delivered once for all to the saints. Quoting from Jude 3. Icons, therefore, are not a matter of decoration or art, but an essential element of the Orthodox faith. Because of the doc- doctrinal importance of icons, the church has developed strict rules or canons, guidelines, concerning their creation. Not every religious picture can be considered an icon. And above all, an icon must convey the inner spiritual meaning of the person or event depicted. The beauty of an icon stems not from the physical beauty of the subject, but from the inner beauty of a life transformed by divine grace. The Son of God came to restore the divine image in man. And iconography is the graphic witness to this restoration. So that's why we also depict the saints. Because the saints are those in whom we can say that the, the miracle of God's presence has, uh, has taken place. You know, each we say that the person is created, using the, the language of the book of Genesis, that the person is created in the image of God. And so our healing is the restoration of the image of God within us. So those who have taken that seriously, many we, we know, but many more we don't, whose names we do not know. But there are many in whom the, the saving grace of God by the Holy Spirit has, you could say it's taken, you know what I mean? They've, they've allowed themselves to become transparent to the grace of God. And the image is renewed within them. One of the things that comes up oftentimes is, uh, so, yeah, I'm having an inner dialogue while I'm trying to talk to you. Um, Is the question of idolatry, you know, whether or not icons are uh, idols. And of course, the church would patently say that they are not. Because idolatry means the worship of something other than God. And we don't worship 
We don't worship anything other than God. But we, but we love God and we love his creation. And so we interact with it in an appropriate manner. But we never confuse God with his creation. We love creation because it is created by him. Just like I can come up and give you a hug. Or even give you a kiss on the cheek. And say, I love you. And you wouldn't say, you're an idolater. You know what I mean? You would never say that to me. Because if I started bowing down to you, yeah, and saying, yeah, show me, teach me your ways or whatever, you know, sure. Um, But um, so one of of the questions that comes up is, how is it not, not idolatry? Well, because it is not the worship of anything other than God. And in the church tradition and in the, the, the Greek language in particular, you know, there's a lot that's lost in translation. There's an important distinction. I won't do the Greek words because, I don't know, I think it's fun for me, but I don't think it really helps anyone. But there's, um, there's a distinction between worship and, do you know what the other word is? Veneration. Well, like in the fact of when we pray to Mother Mary's icon, we're praying to her as our intercessor to God. So that's not, you're not really yeah. worshiping. No, you're not worshiping like... You're praying I, to her like I, to help you out. I come from the Protestant world, for example, my background. Where they don't think she's... Well, so listen though. So they, but, but we would always ask each other, we'd say, will you pray for me? We would always say that. Will you pray for me? And we wouldn't say, oh, you're putting another person as a mediator between you and God. Because what happens when people are united in Christ? They're brought to one another. and God works in our lives through one another. And so we would, we would never consider it to be idolatry to ask another person to pray for you. And so when we seek the intercessions of the saints, what are we doing? We're asking another person to pray for us. And someone who is, in her case, who's closer, closer to God than anyone else because she's the only one who held God, the God-man in her womb, you know, who gave birth to God. And that's why we call her the mother of God. And we seek her prayers uniquely because she has a special relationship with him in a way that only kind of a mother would understand, you know. But we make an important distinction between worship and veneration. And worship is that which is due only to God. I have a really good article about this that I could send you guys. I have all these things I tell you that I'm going to send you and then I forget about it. And I need, I need someone to give me a little checklist at the end of every class. Because you want to see that 60 minutes video on Mount Athos. And then there's a good article on worship and veneration. That See, I published it on my website a while back. So I could easily go find it and uh, send it to you. But worship is acknowledging that God is God. And there, God is the Lord. And there is no other God beside him. And everything is exists on account of God being brought uh, excuse me on account of God bringing it into existence and then veneration is a respect for that which was created by God you know the the appropriate affection that we have for that which has significance because of God like I said if someone grabbed a, a picture of a loved one, this is a, a popular example that's given with regard to iconography. If someone grabbed 
uh, a photo of their grandfather who had passed away 10 years ago. And they said, oh, Grandpa, I just miss you so much. And they were to kiss that icon and hold on to it. That person would not be accused of idolatry either. They would just be accused, if even, (laughs) of loving their grandfather. That's not a bad accusation at all. And so why do we... Why... One of the simple answers I like to give as to why we venerate icons. I mean, throughout the history of mankind, kissing has always been a sign of respect. Watch old movies. You'll see the kids kiss their parents' hands. You'll see someone kiss the the signet on a king's hand. I mean, just throughout history, kissing has always been a sign of respect. And so, just a sec. And so, what I would want to say is, we venerate simply because veneration is an act of of love. Why do we kiss? Why do we kiss the icons? Why why would I venerate the icon of Christ? Because I love Christ. Why would I kiss an icon of the Theotokos? Because I, I love her, like my family in Christ. Why would I venerate the icon of Saint Herman or Saint George or Saint John Chrysostom? Because I love them too. And I benefit. I'm so thankful to them. So anyway, what's, what's, your, what's your question? Well, what is it? Okay, so don't pray to the dead. I always get that. Like, oh, you know. Well, they're not dead. Yeah, well, my question is, who is the dead they're talking about? Don't pray to the dead or for Is it people in hell or is it? So I'll need to know the exact reference. I can't remember what the verse is, but it's like just, it's like basically don't pray to the dead. To the dead. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is that, I don't know where it's at. I don't know. But Let, let's look it up. Okay. I'm just wondering what, who is the dead that's being... Does anybody know what yeah. you're talking I about? I, I think uh, I recognize what you're talking about, but I don't know where it is. Who's the dead Saul, that we're talking about? When uh-huh. Saul was about to fight the Philistines, he involved Samuel the prophet, and Samuel the prophet yelled at him and said, don't pray to me, I'm dead, or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, but I know I. Well, and also, so so it, after so after the resurrection, um, after the resurrection, there there is an understanding that death has been slain. The Christian understanding is that those who have died in Christ to be, you know, like like the New Testament says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, like that those who have died are not subject to death like those in the days of old, before death was slain through Christ's death and resurrection. And so, well, let's, let's dig into it. Let's look it up. Can I look it up? Yeah, well, let's, get it. let's see what the fathers say about it. So over the course of this week, um, send me the reference, and we can start our next session with, with that. I'll, I'll look it up because I have a... I have like a 30-volume set of com- little quotes and commentaries by the church fathers okay. of the entire Bible. And we'll see if we can find... I've always wondered that. There's no doubt. It's the dead that they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, let's look it up this week. And that, that, that way we can give a proper answer. Okay? okay? Father, yeah. I'm kind of thinking that... Well, the point with the saints is kind of like a ladder that you can look up where you look at one person who's gotten them and then it scales all the way back up to the source, which is Christ and mm-hmm. Father. Life but itself, yeah. It seems to me that there's two different ways that can go wrong where 
let's say that somebody becomes obsessed with, with the angel Michael mm-hmm. and in his own way focuses too much on Michael so that he can't see God anymore so he's falsely putting Michael in a place that he shouldn't be mm-hmm. and that's from the bottom up but then there's the other angle where the angel itself can fall where that's more of the top down and it's a it's something taking worship onto itself you're filling different lower images that shouldn't be taking worship onto itself and mm-hmm. I'm not even sure exactly what my question is I'm trying to articulate that there's two if there's a way that it's supposed to go correctly which is it's right respect and right veneration leads to right worship mm-hmm. it seems like there's two ways that it can go wrong which is that the wrong respect of the right thing can lead you astray but also mm-hmm. there can be the nature of the thing falling itself that can lead you astray even if you have good intentions mm-hmm. and I don't know if I articulated that well but I know what you're talking about. I mean, to some extent, um, especially the first part. You you you, you know what he's saying? I have a good reference for that. So in Revelation 22, 9, I found uh, where John the Apostle, right after I believe it was Saint Angel Gabriel, mm-hmm. who was giving him the revelation, mm-hmm. and then after like in chapter 22, he's like after he's received the whole thing, right? He falls down and worships him. That's right. If they become more well, the the idea of the saints is that they, I mean, not the idea, the experience of the saints is that they they're so in love with Christ that they live lives that are inspiring us to to fall in love with Christ. They're so filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit that they inspire us to want to to live that inspired life, you know, not to draw attention to themselves or bear witness to themselves in any way. Father I'm not venerating an angel. I'm paying, you know, respect to 
the you know the angel Gabriel or the guardian archangel Michael. Mm -hmm. I said not because you know I'm better than they or you know I'm gonna be judging them. Who am I? Yeah. I mean they're there, the right hand of God. You know there were the envoys to the the Theotokos of bringing mm -hmm. the good news of the you know God incarnate. <laughs> You know, so yes, I'm thankful for them. So I'm saying thank you mm -hmm. for doing your diligent job and, you know, on serving God at the right hand of God for yeah. us, for mankind. There's also something very interesting that, that you and I don't encounter very often, um, if ever, is uh, that, that we, do, we do see in the lives of some of the saints. And I like to refer to Saint Yakovos a lot. He's a contemporary saint who died in the 90s. Um, saint Yakovos, which means Jacob in Greek, of Evia. And many, and, and many of the lives of the saints, like like you were saying about miracles, they they just reveal what's real, rather than being an exception to reality. Well, one of the things that's common in the lives of the saints is they become very aware of the presence of one of one another. You know, Saint Yakovos many times would directly interact with many of the those who had gone before. The patron of their monastery, Saint David, um, he would interact with him a lot. He would beg for his. In I mean, not beg. He would demand <laughs> in a way that I've never encountered before. It was really scandalous to me at first. He would tell Saint David. If you don't pray for this person's healing, I'm going to lock your head away in the cabinet or something like that. I mean, there's just, there's a direct boldness, like a relationship, a real relationship of direct encounter. So for a lot of us, the, the saints represent an idea of those who have come before us. But they are the great cloud of witnesses with whom we are in communion No, um, no. I mean, but but see, those who are those who are united with God are are not are not confined by time and space the way that we are. It doesn't mean they're om omniscient or omnipresent, but 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 it means that they're not limited by the confines of time. And you actually experience stories like that in the lives of the saints, where incredible things happen, where someone someone goes on a trip that should take three hours and they get there or they, they, they go on a trip that takes three hours for them and then they arrive 30 minutes later at their destination. There's a story from the life of St. Porphyrios where they're supposed to get to the monastery in 30 minutes or something like that and everyone's stressed out. They're going to close the gate of the monastery. And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. And they were on the road for three hours and they showed up and they were like, what are the nuns doing still up? And they looked at the clock and only 30 minutes had gone by. Same with St. Yakovos. He was walking down the street and this happened in the life of St. Nicholas Planas and others where they would be walking down the road and someone in a vehicle, like a carriage in the life of St. Nicholas or a car um, in the life of St. Yakovos, they would say, do you need a ride? And they'd say, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to the same place. No, it's okay. And they'd, they'd be walking slowly down the road. And, you know, they'd get there. They'd be getting close to the church. And they'd see 
The same person they passed a few miles back in front of them turning into the monastery or the church. What? How did that happen? And so there, the, the confines, the, the harsh confines of time and space are, are kind of artificial confines. It's not us who bend it to the, to the creation. It's actually the creation that is at the, the beck and call of God and at his service. And so for those who are close to God in that way and who are doing his will, see, it's not just, it's not like, like they decide, oh, I'm going to do something cool here and like impress a lot of people by, by walking behind them and then showing up ahead of them or something like that, you know. But um, it's, it's always something that God is doing through them. It's always something that God is revealing through them. It's not something that they're just doing on their, you know, on their own accord, definitely. What about like saints and martyrs who haven't been like canonized? I mean, do mm-hmm. they, are they just kind of in the dark up there? Like, no, no, no. No, they're the best. They, you know, I think they're the best. The ones who, whose names are not known. Because you know what? They have no earthly glory. They were, they, they anonymously, you could say, bore witness to Christ. Whose names we and when we commemorate, we do a Sunday of all saints, and we commemorate all the saints who we know and whose names we do not know. And I think that those ones are the most blessed. I would, I would, I think it would be a good practice for us to, to, to ask for the intercessions of those saints whose names we do not know, because they have a special place of humility before God and not before men. Yeah. A hundred years ago in Mexico, there was a great persecution of Christians, and uh, a lot of people don't know that. But there's a movie about it, there's songs about it called La Cristiana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they would give their life to Christ, they would have to hit their, yeah. their uh, icons, I mean, the images of God under their mm-hmm. clothing because they would get executed. Yeah. Wow. And, um, it was uh, a very evil president. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and in Mexico, there's only Catholicism. Yeah. So it's so sad. There's mo- there's this movie called For Greater Glory. Mm-hmm. It talks all about it. And um, there's uh, they were killing priests. They were shooting people. Mm-hmm. It's horrible, horrible. And then <laughs> the church actually, all the the Catholics actually took up arms and uh, basically fought. The back the government mm-hmm. and uh, it was literally a war it was like a holy war to mm-hmm. defend the, the religious freedom of Mexico mm-hmm. because they were kind of like communism they were trying to spread yeah. anyways um, but a lot of people who would help the Cristero soldiers they would actually walk with this big picture of Jesus or La Virgen mm-hmm. the Virgin mm-hmm. and it would say long live, long live Christ the King um, and the Virgin of Guadalupe mm-hmm. and people would die for, for having it yeah, uh, there's a story of- that's what happened in, in even in the you know the the early centuries, this, the sixth, seventh century, the, the seventh into the eighth century of the Christianity. He's he was a really brave fourteen year old martyr. He was tortured to death for being captured in battle, and uh, very sad story. Mm-hmm. I didn't get emotional thinking about it. Yeah, but. Um, they, they, he wasn't canonized till like a hundred years later, but they attributed a lot of miracles through his intercession. 
Mm-hmm. Right, so before he was canonized, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's, that's a common. That's a that's a pretty common occurrence in the Orthodox tradition too. It's like there there are people who recognize. Like there's a saint that a lot of you guys know about, um, Matushka Olga Michael, who lived in Alaska, and uh, there she hasn't been officially canonized, but there are. Many people who've experienced miracles through her prayers. We're just waiting for it to, to officially take place. And, min, and many, many others. And there are others who will never be officially recognized as saints because it's not about getting the title. You know, they don't need the title. They have the reality of it. So, you know what I mean? Orthodoxy isn't about getting the t-shirt. I like to jokingly say, you know what I mean? Like, uh, holy or something like that. It's about being. It's about... it a transfiguration of the very being that God has given you, you know, a restoration, again, to the image of God. And, and then holiness means being united with God who, who alone is holy and then bearing witness to the holiness of God. And that's what the saints do. They're not trying to draw attention to, the, to themselves. None of them would say, you know, don't you think I'm amazing? Look at me or anything like that. I mean, they would always, they're always, they want to be transparent. Like if you see them, they would want you to see through them and see Christ on the other side or see Christ in them. And so that's what it means to be a, a Christian, you know, to, to, to be one in whose life Christ is revealed. Like when um, Father Cosmos said about, when you learn about the saints, you you get to know them and you see right through them to, to the life of Christ. Yeah, that's right. And it makes you really appreciate that individual saint. And he goes into saying, you know, how much Satan hates for a people to get to know the saints and to pray to venerate outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, you know, because it's like a, a war with him once you begin to know the icons and the meaning of the icons, mm-hmm. what they really represent, you see right through the icon into what they did or what they have done for mm-hmm. Christ. Yeah, it's more than it's more than just a two-dimensional picture. And their icons are kind of popularly referred to as a, like a window to heaven. They're always pointing beyond themselves. There's a there's a really good book. If you're interested in iconography. I won't say religious art. If you're interested in iconography, there's a really good book called The Art of Seeing. The Art of Seeing by, well, he's Father Maximus. It's that same one that I was telling you about. But, but it, it, it might be under his previous name, Nicholas. Forgive my crazy writing again. Constance is his last name. Um, and it's a really good book. Very beautiful, insightful. And if you're interested in iconography at all, learning more about it and how we approach it and, and uh, kind of, you could say, read or interpret iconography. There's also a website that I refer people to a lot called Icon Reader. Iconreader.wordpress.com. And you should check that out. Icon Reader. And it's dot WordPress. 
He hasn't done any updates for, for a long time. Um, But it it doesn't really matter because um, it's it's a really thorough website. I mean, you can look up almost any icon of any feast, any of the feast days, the Holy Trinity, or a Hospitality of Abraham icon that you're talking about. Um, and it gives a really nice explanation of what, what it means. You know, what is this little hand? Like there's a little hand coming down in the corner of some of the icons, like of St. George. What does that mean? What do the colors mean? There's a lot of nuance because because we live in a very verbally based culture. We're not as in tune with nonverbal communication. We're not as in tune with what's being communicated in the, through the use of line and perspective and color. Like maybe people of the past would have been. If you wear a certain color, it would mean something. Have you ever heard people say, wear a red tie? It's a, what is it, a power tie or something? What do they call it? You know, it's kind of funny, but it is true. I mean, color evokes different things. And we use colors throughout the liturgical cycle of the year to reveal different things too. And we could, we could go into another 40 minutes talking about all of the different liturgical colors. But we're not going to because we only have six minutes left. Well, all, the, all the books that I've read... And the saints talk about, and the elder talked about how it was the color of the icon was important. You just didn't go over there and slap something. Exactly, the that's right. It had a meaning. It has a significance it, to it. it that's right. Story. <coughs> so, yeah. Okay. What is it? I I know this is going to be off well. I know science has proven that it's real, but churches I don't know have accepted it yet. But the cloth of Tehran. Oh yeah. Are they considered an icon? Did you consider that an icon? They proved that it's real. Yeah. But the churches are just... The no, they, they proved it. It's found it true. Yeah, they found it. The last thing that they did now, they have the analogy. They said that the original yeah. they have taken. I know. It was from a repair. So now that they had the actual technology to do the 3D printing, if they were saying that um, the latest research that they did on it, they said that it was the way that they, they there is no machine that if, like, if you take a Xerox machine, a copier machine, a factory, uh-huh. it would take, um, to, to do that image, um, it would take that there's an, an unexplainable light that took to create mm-hmm. that image. Yeah. The machine doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. Not, not in the so, we, so I'll just say generally, we accept the, uh, the authenticity of it. Yeah, well, that's true. They said that basically what it came down to is they said that there isn't enough electricity on the planet to be able to mm-hmm. do transfer and they, they the found, image. They, the other things they found in the knee area and in the elbow area, they found on the cloth, they found dirt that you could only find in Jerusalem outside. Yeah, interesting. They also found splinters of wood on the cloth that matched the cross that we have now that we already know was the cross of the carries. The wood mm-hmm. matches up with that yeah. the cross. So there, I mean, they, yeah, they, there's found, so found many the things the now that they, they're pretty much sure that mm-hmm. it's The latest that's thing, they, they, they real. did it, the DNA, and the DNA that they traced it to a, a particular tribe, and when they traced the tribe, is related to the, the Alpacos. And that particular tribe oh. is like, it's like a tribe that is so pure 
that it doesn't intermarry with any mm -hmm. other tribe. And they tested one of the young girls. And it was only one out of the DNA strand, Correct. only one little piece matched that tribe that it was the most pure. That's the closest match that they got to. Mm -hmm. It's only, he only has one. It's incredible. But what's, so what's the, what's the point of all of it though? What's the point behind all of that? I mean, behind whether or not it's real and stuff. I mean, it's it's nice to authenticate it and believe, but and the the point is that Christ is real. Yeah. You know that the God man, the God, that. Yeah. Myself personally, I'm very interested in science. I just got this book about it. Um, science, much of the Bible, and I think it mm -hmm. helps people to yeah. Yeah. Well, say, like strengthen their. That's right. You know, well, she said you couldn't build an ark. There's an ark, the same size, down in Tennessee. Yeah, there's the ark. And it floats. So, all right, we have a few minutes left. Okay. And I want to. But would that be considered or would the history? It would be considered more like a relic than an icon. I mean, um, yeah, that's what I, that's. That's what I mean. Archaeology. You could say God is allowing that to be shown to us. It's like this first icon. Yeah, well, it's an, it, it is, I mean, it is, it is an icon of Christ. I mean, it's an image of Christ who is, who is the living icon of God. So, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it is fascinating. So, how to venerate icons. Most of you know, most of you have, have been coming to church for a while. But, uh, but when we do this session, I like to give a little demonstration on just, how to venerate. Because I see people do all kinds of different things. Everyone kind of has their own little, why did they do this? And then the next person in line did something a little different. One did a half bow, one did a full bow, one did a three crosses, and then what? You know what I mean? All kinds yeah. of different things. And so there is a, there's a little bit of variety in, in Orthodox piety, you could say, the way people express themselves in worship. But... Uh, but when I am catechizing people, I like to kind of give them all clear guidance on how we've, how I instruct people to venerate icons. It's pretty typical practice. So I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bring my little voice recorder with me for in, for whoever listens in. But when you approach when you approach an icon, first of all, we make the sign of the cross, which we've talked about in the past, and we'll probably talk about it again. But you put your three, your first three fingers together, representing our belief in the Holy Trinity. And then the last two fingers come down, representing the two natures of Christ. Christ who came down to earth. In the name we of the Father, the cross, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. To our abdomen, um, and Christ is in our right midst. shoulder to our left shoulder. That's how we make the sign of the cross. Thank you. The sign of the cross is a prayer, or as some of you know, I like to call it orthodox Love it in Christ. Today language. we, you know... Call the mind. People are, people are always getting on quite broadly. Uh, the friends of God, traditional Christian cases, all about the saints. Outward. Today's called the uh, Sunday of all of saints. Worship and things like that. It's like, and this commemoration began as the speaks sign language. Commemoration sign language of all martyrs originally, using your hands to. And then to them were added all the ranks um, of the saints so who bore witness to Christ in many different ways. This is a form ways. of sign language. It's a way of Even if occasion did not require the shedding of their blood, you know, way. when we refer to the martyrs, traditionally we're talking expression. about those who have died 
Yes, Proclaiming you're all doing it right Christ, now. Who died for what are you Christ's talking about? Sake, By changing your facial expressions, you're communicating capitulate to whatever temptations words. were being By thrown their way. Posture. Refused to deny their faith, their essential belief in Christ Jesus, and bore witness to Him through so dying want for to, Him. To communicate appropriately with the whole Today, of our you could being, say that we commemorate the, words that we say, the harvest of the coming of the Holy Spirit into the world. And the church has always understood that a living at the being feast is of not Pentecost, the grace a, of the Holy thought, Spirit was given to the people of God. In action, you know, we are people. The seed that you could call the image of God within each and every person, that latent seed was watered with the water of the grace of the the Holy Spirit. We do bows and we do prostrations. And from that, we venerate icons. Little, to name a few things. And so when we enter the church, unimposing, appropriate, when you're entering and crossing the threshold of the church, has sprouted forth the life of God God manifests through the lives of men um, as a a form of reverence for the temple of God for the place where heaven who have fallen in love with our Lord Jesus Christ collide and become living witnesses to him. And then we walk up to the center icon. So in commemorating the harvest of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we're celebrating the fruit born forth by those who become spirit bearers. So keep that in mind and that's okay. But you make the sign of the cross. God is taken up his throne. As an act of You could say a holy person is one in whom God has been in make the son of the cross and bow a person who has become the habitation the ground in front of, you. of the living God. So, two cross and bow. We're speaking of the much then fruit the icon, brought forth by the grain of wheat that fell the hand the of the saint and died. Or if if it's an icon, it's the glorification of, Christ, of the saints is the foundation of the church the feet of Christ and the perfection the of the gospel of a saint. They who fulfilled the indeed in the case, sayings of the Savior. Here, so we can. Kiss the relic, and after you've venerated then... It's helpful sometimes to understand where bow one this, more time. the words that we use have come now, from. Now, you'll notice, because we get a little back... And some of you know this, but some are not so familiar with do their the origins of the word saint. Twice. They'll venerate. So a quick comment on that. And then they'll kind of step off to the side. The English word saint... Have you ever seen that? ...is derived from Someone the Latin was like, word... like, what does that mean? ...sanctus. If they go off to the side, I mean, is that an appro- is that something you can consider that, you have that we use the word sanctity? Because everyone's as a synonym trying, they, for holiness. They know like, sanctity and holiness that we're are the same words. Here. But that's really just because the Greek the equivalent of the this word person, is while agios, I'm doing my last bow, the agios, next person just literally means holy. Bows to venerate the icon. It's the same word, and so that we when you have icons in your own home, thrice thrice holy. It's appropriate to greet them. I call it greeting the saints. And in English, we have a distinction between the word saint and the word holy, but that distinction isn't present in the Greek language. It feels like we discover them, but it also feels like they're finding us. For like a saint of the church, we can relate to example that teach us something about God. You don't say Saint Paul; you say Agios Pavlos, something that inspires us. And so, because of the the, the morphology more, of language. There are those whom we kind of we English, seek out whose writings saint, which really has a Latin appreciate, origin, or in Greek, whose presence they just say, even we holy appreciate, Paul. we feel drawn to. So when we're talking and about so someone who over is time, a saint. Again, as you we're get talking to know the about someone who has them, come to live a life of holiness, and a life set hear apart the stories of their lives in the church services. You'll start what do we commemorate? All saints, acquiring here and there. 
We always start with the icon of Christ. Because having ventured through the holy season of Great Lent, Christ, do you remember Great Lent? Ideally. And then kind of build yeah. out from there. It seems like a long while back and now, it's appropriate it? A long have. time ago. But we have ventured through the holy season of Great Lent. And we journeyed with Christ to his passion. Which is really an icon of the incarnation. And we experienced the lamentation of creation upon the sacrifice of the perfect one on the cross. Use that as your model. And having risen with him on the third day unto our life as members in the everlasting kingdom of God. We maybe now struggle a patron saint that you're drawn to, to like years ago, the Holy Prophet David. So you put maybe the as Holy a peculiar right people underneath. upon the earth. Maybe you really love Saint Those who are Orthodox, especially understand so what it means to be a peculiar to people upon the earth. Maybe you're drawn to the Holy Archangel the Gabriel. As those who reclaim the world for its creator. Archangel Gabriel, or you like both. Archangel yet being as strangers in a strange land. You know, in the front of the church. Those ones who have and come over to time, be referred to as you know, saints create in the church what we call a prayer corner, have demonstrated which how is like your own to fulfill our calling as those who love connection Christ to the church at home. It's a place those where we continue the work who are that we do here to the faith. appropriately and necessarily. Those have been a centerpiece of the hymns Because for you're the a day. member of the church, you know, you're, you are... Striving to be to connect. If you want to hear what the church teaches, if you want to hear the inspired what we believe and beautiful and words what we of the church, with you have you to do come to the services. You can't so just Saint listen John to me ramble for about twenty minutes every Sunday. The home is to be a domestic church. The hymns of we the church our home to be a place teach us what need to prayer. be learned. And a last night from Gospels, foreign to prayer. We heard these incredibly beautiful a place words where it should be natural to on open the theme up of the day book or open up the Psalms listen and read them. Being set aflame with the fire the of the love of the Lord God. More than once a day. <gasps> they fully you know disdained I mean? the fire. If you come here really and I fire. start telling you about the lives of the saints, you're not going to be surprised. Or being kindled like Bible. most divine living coals through Christ, did the august martyrs wholly burn up the dead wood of errors but, and um, but anyway, because this is it's, it's natural for that to take place here, and we want and thus that beheaded, they themselves to extend to all the hosts of the enemy. Traditionally, in that they you would walk their into an Orthodox home. Their great there would be a candle lit in front of the or a, an oil lamp going in front of the icons continuously, twenty-four. You may remember the. Representing words of an early the ceaselessness Christian, of God's presence and the ceaseless those who died prayer that for we're their striving faith, for. He said, Tertullian said, Most people the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. When they leave, I did it for a while, but then um, I was told that I wasn't We would be tempted to mourn the loss of those who have died for their faith. Fire. But, so it but would be a kind of an act of faith if you were We to would only mourn if we were those... A test who believed of in the triumph of death passing. over life. But then, if you don't leave it going continuously... So we don't mourn because we don't believe in the triumph of home. death over life. Go to the icon corner and light the... We believe in the triumph of life the the over corner. death. First thing. And, and in the martyrs, that triumph is proclaimed. The saints. And so the more... We're present there, just like they are here. The persecutors tried and, uh, to squash it becomes the church. A part, the more the persecutors flow, tried part of to destroy... Life. The yeah. beautiful witnesses to the faith. Oh yeah, some people some people do that, and we have those little ones mostly for kids, you know. To the more because it's the observers it's to see little in the world. Those who had not known Christ we came to believe in Jesus. Christ make some of these small icons, the life-giving, sacrifice, and death. So 
of the martyrs. So great is the holy mer- holiness of the martyrs. The, the relic, church proclaims, yeah. but mm-hmm. that by them, even so whatever the you can are do. I mean, if you can put your lips to it, then these ones, it, beginning with the holy prophets, then some then the apostles, will, martyrs, confessors, and bow, teachers. And Holy monastics, hand and male and female, in order to come into contact with it, rather than that great cloud of witnesses. None at all. So By yeah, that's example, okay. We're inspired. Just don't do it as a rule. Like I mean, if you can actually venerate and run the race set before us with perseverance, and then it's an exception when something's a little out of reach or something like that. When I think about the, th- the saints, I like to. It's hard to be reminded. Yeah. That's okay. And remind you all. All right. Um, that they didn't do it so, so that we don't have to. I'll stop they didn't there live for a life now. of there's a little more that I could talk about, but we're fully nine and over, and I want to respect and wonderfully. Your time. So, um, so that we can sit back and relax say, and enjoy. The art of seeing is a good text on. They did not do it so that we don't have to. The writing they of Saint John of Damascus in order to inspire us. Yes, three treatises on divine images. If you're interested in going just like God didn't become man just to show us that He could do you can it, look up Saint John of Damascus. Look, I became a and man, also, everyone. Isn't that amazing? Saint Theodore the Studite. No, you know, Studite is someone so from the Studite monastery. Grace, Constantinople. He is by nature. Um, Saint Theodore also wrote a book called "On the Holy Icons," and that's quite an active calling. It's, it's very not helpful. A one. If you're interested in that, so a saint like you could say is someone who has given his or her life. Send me a note. Who's died for the faith. Send you a link. The early church consisted whatever, whatever of a helps. small, dedicated group of individuals uh, who took care of one another. And with a simple prayer through the fr- prayers of all to pray and share in the Holy the Lord Eucharist. Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us. And through times of persecution, the Amen. church is known for having gone underground and even served liturgies on the tombs of martyred Christians. By proclaiming the life and resurrection of Christ on the tombs of thy, thy departed brethren, again, they're proclaiming the triumph of the resurrection. And that's where the church from very early on has always set in their altar relics of saints. We have portions from the relics of St. Herman of Alaska and the 40 holy martyrs of Sebast. We remember the words of Christ. Whosoever would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And greater Love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Naturally, those who followed in the footsteps of Christ by giving their lives for his sake would be considered holy as he is holy. Having proven in life and death conformity to the likeness of Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Willful obedience to him in seeking to fulfill his commandments and having borne witness to Christ by way of giving up one's own life The saint, and I would like to just say the Christian, just the Christian, because the saint is the someone who's bearing witness to what the life of the Christian is meant to be. Saint is not special Christian. Saint is just Christian who takes his or her faith seriously. This is someone who has divested his or herself of the idea of having one's own life to begin with. Nothing that I am is purely my own. Nothing that I have is purely my own. It is all of and in and for and by Christ and unto Christ. And now not only in principle, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit. 
So the saints remind us that we are called to die for our faith, but to die for the faith doesn't necessarily entail entail physical death. Just like taking up one's cross doesn't just mean grabbing two perpendicular beams of wood and carrying them around. Or just wearing a necklace that's shaped like a cross. But it entails living a certain way. The Holy Apostle Paul proclaimed, I die daily. I die daily. I think most of us try to avoid dying on a daily basis rather than accepting the call to die daily for Christ's sake. And this, he said, I die daily, this is his boast. Because to die means to become a witness or a martyr, a witness for Christ. So you see, beloved ones, when we choose to identify with Christ, we admit that there really is no life, no truth and no reality apart from its very source. There is no life and no truth and no reality apart from Christ himself. When we make the statement of faith and believe, we enter into the mystery of life in Christ. And we sacrifice our self-will upon the altar of our own hearts, offering it to God. We don't like to do this because our weakness is exposed. I want to give you everything, Christ. We say, I want to give you everything. And then we become disappointed by what little we have to offer. We come to be seen and to become known. And then we shrink away out of shame or fear. But remember, fear not, for I have overcome the world. And remember that God's strength is perfected in weakness. And so, rather than being ashamed by your weakness being revealed, there's a kind of boldness, you could say, a boldness of faith with which you are strengthened when you come to the realization of your own smallness, your own nothingness, your own weakness. There's a little word from St. Joseph the Hesychast that I really love. He wrote lots of letters, but he didn't write any books. Some of his letters have been collected into book format. But listen to what he says about this. He said, I wanted to write three homilies, or even three books. This is a monastic who lived a very simple, quiet life in a a rustic desert area. I wanted to write three homilies, or even three books. The first one would only contain this. Man is nothing. And I would shout it out constantly that I am nothing. In the other, I would write that the self-glorified God is everything in all and for all. I am nothing and he is everything. And in the third, have patience in everything until death. You understand he's not saying I'm nothing and that's it. I'm nothing and he is everything. (laughs) 
We become naked. We become bare before God. And as nothing in the eyes of those who find value in prestige, worldly prestige and power. In the face of it, our weakness and our nothingness, we fix our eyes upon Christ, the ruler of all, laying aside every weight that prevents us from doing so. And if we're honest with ourselves and asking with St. Paul, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Ask yourself that this week. What can separate me? Can anything separate me from the love of Christ? If we're honest with ourselves in asking this question, then we have to admit that really nothing can aside from ourselves in being bound by our own reluctance. But if we believe and admit that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, then we begin to live like martyrs in a way. We begin to live as witnesses to the faith. In a homily celebrating the martyrs as true witnesses of the faith, St. John Chrysostom addresses what it is that we can do as those who are not directly confronted with persecution. We can follow their example. Excuse me, how we can follow their example and not be deprived of the opportunity to identify with Christ as they did. There were many after times of persecution ended. You may be surprised. You may not understand. It's hard to wrap our head around. During the time of such a potent witness to the faith, there are many who lamented the comfort of the Christians and the complacency that came when persecution ended. And also they lamented the fact that they would not be able to die as martyrs, as those who have come before them. But St. John Chrysostom gives us a solution for that predicament, if you have that predicament. He says, let us too train ourselves for an opportunity for martyrdom. They despised life. You despise luxury. They threw their bodies on fire. You now throw money in the hands of the poor. They trampled on the burning coals. You extinguish the flame of desire. These things are difficult, but also rewarding. Don't focus on the present obstacles, but on the future benefits. Not on the tortures at hand, but the anticipated blessings. Not the sufferings, but the prizes. Not the labors, but the crowns. Not the sweat expended, but the rewards. Not the sorrows, but the returns. Not the consuming fire, but the kingdom that lies ahead. This is the greatest method and easiest path to virtue. To focus not just on the labors, but also on the rewards that follow the labors. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the concept of holiness as a status of a morally superior being. He's talking about people who have come to love, whose lives have been so transformed by the love of God that they have to love in return. One thing that's proven true throughout the ages is that those Christians who are confronted with adversity and endure by hanging only on the sufficiency of God's grace, they become living beacons of the faith, transparent to Christ. So our call is to become the same 
Not by some external measure. Not to become labeled a saint in the eyes of others, but simply to be like Christ. And even more, to be united to Christ. Glory be to God that his strength is made perfect in weakness. Glory to God that he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Glory to God that he takes what is not and transforms it into something that is by the grace of the Holy Spirit. May it be so in us as it has been in the Holy Ones, the friends of God whom we commemorate today, always, now and forever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen.